0: All right, this morning, as I said, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. We've been following along along with the story about this guy named Moses. You may have heard of him before. If you've not been here the last few weeks, we've seen that uh, there was this baby that was born, that was put in a river, that was saved by Pharaoh's daughter, that was brought up in Pharaoh's household. Even though he was not Egyptian, he was Hebrew, this baby then would grow up and instead of living in a life of luxury, which he would have been entitled to in Pharaoh's house. Instead of staying in that, that, that life of privilege and luxury, he decides that he's going to be the liberator for his people, for the, the, the people of Israel. He's going to stand up, he's going to uh, lead, and he's going to liberate. That's what he decides he wants to do. The problem is he's really, really bad at it. He gets in there, he tries to do it, he kills somebody, and he says, all right, who's with me? Let's... Let's, let's start a revolution. And they're like, who are you? And why should I follow you? And what made you boss of me? That's what we looked at last week. He kills this guy. He says, let's do it. And then no one wants to follow him. You know, that's the definition of leadership, is that someone is following you. If you call yourself a leader and no one is following you, you're not a leader, you're just taking a walk. And that's what Moses was doing. He was taking a walk, which turns into a run, because he finds out he's got nobody following him, he's just killed an Egyptian, that Pharaoh is now after him, the Hebrew people are not with him, and he says, see y'all, I'm out, this didn't work. Heads off into the desert, and he just wants to be... Anonymous. He wants to disappear. He wants to be gone. In his embarrassment, in his fear, he runs away. He doesn't want to be an Egyptian. He doesn't want to be a Hebrew. He just wants to be Moses. And he wants to be gone. And that's where the story kind of stops for a long time. Now, we don't see this stop in our Bibles because it goes straight from chapter 2 into chapter 3. But really, there's a solid 40 years that goes on here where Moses goes on and is, is gone. Now, he, he defends some, some women at a, at a well. He ends up marrying one of these women. He, has, uh, he, he ends up uh, having a family. He has kids. And it seems as though his plan has worked. He's disappeared. He's gone. He's, he's anonymous, living his life shepherding a flock out in the desert no one's chasing him he's not a man on the run he's not a wanted felon he's not the 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 failed revolutionary of the hebrew people he's just moses when he names his kids he reflects this because he talks about how he's just a sojourner he's a foreign man in a foreign land and that's kind of how he wants it And that's where the story picks up this morning in Exodus chapter 3. And as we begin this passage, I've taken a little bit of a trip down memory lane uh, this week. uh, This passage here in Exodus chapter 3 has has played a very important role in my life. God has powerfully used this in the last two decades. And I've heard dozens of messages on this text. Uh, I've heard several people, several different pastors talk about it, about Moses and his encounter with the burning bush. But there's a couple that have stuck with me over the years and I've talked before about how sometimes the biggest moments in our lives are ones that we see coming, the birth of a child, a a marriage, a big job change, things that that we know are going to be life-changing moments, but there's also times in our lives where God is at work doing things, and we think it's just an ordinary day doing an ordinary thing, but these are things that will forever change us, and we don't even know it's happening at that time. This little thing right here is a sermon series. Uh, This is one of those times. If I could go back to sometime in the late 90s, whenever I bought this, I don't know when it was, but if I could go back and I could tell myself, hey, that little thing you just bought off of the internet may have been the first thing I ever bought off the internet, to be honest with you. That little thing that you bought off the internet right there, it's going to change your life. And when I say change your life, I don't mean like an in increments. I mean, it's going to completely change the trajectory of your life. You're going this way, and now you're going to go this way. That's what this, this sermon uh, did. If, if you look in here, you, you see what this is here? <laughs> Middle schoolers, this is cassette tapes, okay? Actually, who am I kidding? College students, this is cassette tapes, right? That's what this is. I popped a few of these in this week and listened to these and had to rewind them and actually wait for it to get to the very beginning of where I wanted to listen to. It was fantastic. I told Emily that uh, this has inspired me this week to spend a little bit of an Amazon gift card that I had, and I bought a Walkman this week, and I am fired up about it, too. <laughs> Let me tell you, I am really excited about it. But all of these sermons right here, eight sermons on one verse, it's on Isaiah 26, 8. Isaiah 26, 8, which says, Yes, Lord, while walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. It's engraved on my wedding band on the inside of it. This has marked me. In teaching this verse, uh, Louis Giglio, who's over Passion Conferences, if you're familiar with Passion, Passion City Church in Atlanta, uh, Louis absolutely blew my mind, and it has forever Marked me. And I'm telling you this because I'm not sure where Louis' teaching ends and my teaching begins. This sermon series, and, and where he spends a long time on Exodus chapter 3, is in my bones, it is part of who I am. And I tell you that up front, one, because you should, you should listen to this, and you should go and you should find some of his teaching. He's got a, a book out that, that talks about this. It's, it's worth reading. But I, I don't copy sermons. I don't just, you know, copy and paste other people's sermons. But I have no idea where Louis' teaching begins or ends and my teaching begins on this one, but my prayer is that your world would be shaken in the same way that mine was two decades ago. It is no understatement at all to tell you I would not be standing here if it were not for this sermon series right here, and where he spends a lot of time in Exodus chapter 3. So with all that as kind of a, a precursor to this and kind of leading us into this, let's go back to Exodus chapter 2 and just remember where we left off last week. This is important. For our setting. Exodus chapter two, verse twenty-three. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and Jacob or and God re- remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw all the people of Israel, and God knew. That's what we talked about last week. The idea that God knows. God knew the, the, the struggle. He remembered the struggle of the Hebrew people. He saw their struggle. He saw their pain. God knew. And then immediately, when we go to chapter 3 now, the scene shifts to Moses. And if you're not paying attention, it can feel like an abrupt scene change here. That you go from this one scene of the Hebrew people suffering back to the desert to the failed revolutionary Moses. And it can feel like you're making this this abrupt change and there's no connection. But what you're going to see is that the end of chapter 2 gives us the context for chapter 3. What we're told in chapter 2 is that God knew and that God remembered. And now what we're going to see is what it looks like when God knows and when God remembers. What does it mean for God to remember the Hebrew people? Well, in order to know what that means, you've got to come back to the story of this guy, Moses. So let's read in chapter 3, verse 1, and see what it looks like when God remembers. Chapter 3, verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire, but not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? So this is remarkable enough in and of itself. It's not going to be the focus of our time this morning, but you have this flame that is just self-combusting, that's not burning the bush up, it isn't using the bush for fuel, it is its own fuel source, and this flame is happening, and Moses sees it, something kind of shows up, appears to Moses, and and, and Moses says, I've got to check this thing out. Can you imagine this scene here? Moses has been a shepherd for 40 years now. He has a family, he has a life, he has freedom from fear, freedom from retribution, but he has... No people. Again, a foreigner, a foreign man in a foreign land. And I wonder if he thought about that when he woke up in the morning. I wonder if that kept him up at night when he went to bed. You wonder, I think about Moses in those 40 years when he's out shepherding the flock and it would be hot outside and he would be looking over his sheep. I wonder if he didn't let his mind drift to his, his people, his kinsmen in Egypt and, and how they must be feeling in the midst of that heat but being oppressed by the Egyptian rulers that were over them. You wonder if he didn't think about what they were going through. And then you wonder if on days whenever maybe food was sparse, when things were tough, when the terrain seemed a little bit a little bit dicey, a little bit scary, whenever there were thieves around, or maybe things were tough, if he didn't think about his life in the palace, and how he could have been in a place where he would have been served the food instead of having to shepherd the flock. I'm speculating a bit here but based on comments that we've already seen and what he names his son and based on other things that we'll see here in the book of Exodus, I think Moses was haunted by what he'd done and how he'd fled. I think it lived in his heart and in his mind and in his soul every single day. I think he lost sleep thinking about his people and their slavery. I think it It hurt him that there was nothing he could do about it, that he had blown his chance. I think he he probably thought, well, if I'd done it this way and if I'd gone about it this way, instead of killing this guy, I'd gotten this guy on my side, I could have done this. I think it bothered Moses a lot. But then this happens. This flame shows up out of nowhere. This flame shows up and and calls to Moses. says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. This angel, of the Lord, is nothing less than God Himself revealing Himself to Moses. And He is coming to meet Moses. This has never happened like this. God has spoken to His people before, God has even wrestled before with, with, with His people, but He's never come in this way. There's no precedent for this. Moses wouldn't have been looking out for this. Moses isn't sure what to make of this either. When the bush doesn't turn into just a lump of charcoal, Moses knows he needs to go and check this out. He knows this isn't normal. He knows something is going on. Verse 4. When the Lord saw he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Again, this is a place where we could spend a lot of time here, but we won't for the importance of, uh, of time. But, but it's important to note how this starts. First, we have to note that, once again, it is God that initiates the action. This is all over scripture. God initiates the action, just like Abraham. Just like Moses in the basket and and Pharaoh's daughter drew him out. There is nothing that was done by Moses to provoke this from God. There's nothing that was done by Abraham to provoke God to come to Abraham and say, Abraham, you're going to be my guy that I'm going to make a nation out of. There's nothing in Moses that provokes God. God isn't sitting around Waiting to be recognized and hoping that somebody will remember him. God is always the initiator. Always the initiator. I'll say that again. God is always the initiator. God comes down. He condescends. He comes down to Moses. God pursues. God draws. God calls. He is the one drawing us. We are not chasing him. You ever heard that before? That used to be a popular phrase. I don't hear it a whole lot. That used to be a popular f- phrase in Christian lingo. People would really want to sound holy, and they, just want to, they would say, I just want to chase after God. I just want to, I just want to go to this, this worship service, because this worship service, they, just, they chase after God. I, I, that's what I want to do. I want to chase after God. It sounds holy, but that's not how it works. He comes down to us. We don't go up to him. And now he's going to explain how this thing's going to work to Moses. He's the, he is God and he's laying the ground rules for how this whole thing is about to go down. Moses, don't just come traipsing in here like this is just another little thing that you're going to kind of check out and you're just going to get a feel for. I called you over. Now listen to how this is going to go. And God tells Moses that the ground is holy that he is standing on. Why? Well, it's not because Moses has made it so. It's because God has shown up and made it so. God's very presence, even concealed as it is within this bush, within this fire, has changed the very nature of the ground that Moses is standing on. God never shows up when things don't begin to change. If God shows up, something is going to change. When God comes on the scene, there is no status quo. There is no business as usual. That doesn't exist anymore. Things begin to change. Do you think Moses was thinking about his sheep whenever he's standing in front of this flame, taking his sandals off, standing on holy ground? Not a chance. He was terrified. He couldn't even look at the fire because he was so scared. You see that there? Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And yet God draws him in and he says, Moses, Moses, come closer. And Moses follows the call. He did as he was directed. And this is the exchange that follows. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. And I know about their sufferings. Again, this repeats what we just read at the end of chapter 2. I have observed, I have heard, and I know. And I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them... From that land to a good and spacious land, to a, flo- a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the Israelites' try or cry for help has come to me. And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So God lays, out, lays this out for Moses. He says, I know you ran away. I know you tried your best to forget about your kinsmen, your people, the Israelites. I know that you started this thing before and you've tried to move on. But you need to know, I've not forgotten about them, Moses. I know their pain. He saw, he heard, and he knows. This is not some far removed God that has left his people to their misery. He knows them. So what is it that God's going to do about it? What is it that God's going to do? Since he knows and he's remembered, what's God's big plan here? Verse 10. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Like that one sentence there. Therefore, go. But hang on just a second. It seems like a terrible idea seems like a really bad plan. Why would God come down, come to Moses for this? Moses of all people. Moses has already tried this and failed miserably. Moses has already tried to do what God is saying. Hey, you go do this. He's killed a man. He's attempted to start the uprising. uprising, And he couldn't get so much as a locust to follow him. Nothing was following him. Nobody cared. He's not a good candidate for this task. He's not a good choice. And somebody needs to let God know this before things get awkward. And Moses is going to. Because God has just recruited a guy who can't make the, 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 the team in gym class to now go back to gym class and become their best player. That's essentially what God has done. It's a bad choice by God. And Moses agrees. Look at verse 11. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses no longer sees himself as the self-appointed savior of his people. He's been cured of that delusion, that dream that he had. Moses is no longer looking at his people saying, look at what I can do for these people. I've got the pedigree, I've got the resources, I've got the education, I've got the connections in the palace with the Egyptians, and I know how they work and how the guard works. I'm, I'm, I'm Israel, an Israelite by birth. I am all these great things. I've got all these things. Moses isn't any of that anymore. He has no delusions about that anymore at all. He sees himself as a washed-up has-been that his kinsmen have completely forgotten about. He carries no authority now, no recognition, no gifting or ability, nothing that would make him a leader worthy of following. Once it may have made sense, and even then when it may have made sense, he failed miserably. So Moses' first question to God is, why me? Who am I that you would come to me? Now, if you heard Moses say this, what would your response be to Moses? Moses. I mean, just be honest. Some of you are cynical and you're mean people, and you'd be like, you're right, Moses, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be doing this. Absolutely right. Most of you guys, you would try to pump up Moses. You'd be like, oh, Moses, Ah, oh, forget about that. Forget about how we know this story goes. What would your natural inclination be? You would try to comfort Moses. Moses here. Try to pump him up. We tell him, you can do this, Moses. You got this. Pharaoh ain't got nothing on you. Don't be so down on yourself, Moses. You're special in God's eyes. You just got to dig deeper within you. After all, Moses, this is your dream, and now God has come to fulfill your dream, Moses. This is your hope. This is what you've always wanted. This is what you think about all the time, Moses, since you were young. Just dig deep, Moses. You can do this. Make this dream come true. Hashtag Empowered. That's what we would tell him. Come on, you got this. If I can get on a soapbox here for just a second, ladies, you especially need to be aware of this tendency in a lot of popular Bible studies for women. They are built around making you feel empowered, strong, and powerful. They are about dream fulfillment and God's ability to make your dreams come true. I want you to take this little sample Blurred from a review from the number nine book on Amazon this week. This is about a book called Girl, Stop Apologizing. It's by Rachel Hollis. She's got a whole documentary on Netflix. It's pretty fascinating. Here's what it says. In Girl, Stop Apologizing, the, New York, the number one New York Times bestselling author and founder of a multi-million-dollar media company, Rachel Hollis sounds a wake-up call. She knows that many women have been taught to define themselves in light of other people whether it's wife, mother, daughter, or employee. Instead of learning how to own who they are and what they want, with a challenge to women everywhere to stop talking themselves out of their dreams, Hollis identifies the excuses to let go of, the behaviors to adopt, and the skills to acquire on the path to growth, confidence, and believing in yourself. A lot of us would put that book in Moses' hands. Moses, you got this. You got it. Just believe in yourself. This is your dream. Be empowered. Stop stop being defined by all these things in your past. Stop being defined by other people. Stop being defined by this. This is exactly what we would tell Moses. And we'd be celebrating, and we'd have all kinds of pep rallies for him. We'd say, you got this. Go for it. You're bigger than your mistakes. Believe in yourself, Moses. Look at what God tells Moses. Verse 12. He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. None of that stuff. None of this, Moses, you're stronger than you think you are. You can do this. None of this, Moses, you just got to believe in yourself. I'm here to fulfill your dream. None of this, Moses, you've wanted this since you were young. You can do this. No, 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 no. Moses says, who am I, God? And God says, I'm here with you. Didn't answer his question at all. And just so you know I'm here with you, here's here's what's going to happen. He doesn't say, I'm going to puff you up, make you a strong, powerful leader. I'm going to give you this platform that you can build on Instagram. And you get your social media going just right. And you'll get enough followers and enough likes. And you'll get all this going and people will start following you because you'll be an influencer. No, no, no. What God says is, I'll be right there with you. And how you'll know that I'll be there with you is when you're done, I'll be right here and you'll worship me. G. thanks. Super helpful for me, God. I'm telling you I can't go because I'm not qualified. And God's response is, I know. That's why I'm here. Because you're not qualified. Moses says, why me? I failed once. I'm the wrong guy. Who am I to do this? And God says, exactly, you are not the one to do this. I am the one to do this. Now, that is not the modern Christian message. That is not the modern cultural message. God never tries to assuage Moses' personal concerns and self-esteem issues. In fact, if he does anything, he only says, you're right. You really don't bring anything to this. Not one. He ignores him. Moses says, I can't do this. And God says, I can, and I'll be right here when you get back. It's important to note that God says that. And we'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. For now, Moses is skeptical. He's got another question. Verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites, do you like that? He's talking to a... A bush that's talking back to him. It's a flame that has said, I'm going to go with you. And Moses says, Well, if I do go, he's still considering this here. He's still weighing his options and saying, All right, you've not, you've not made me feel any better about myself. But if I decide to do this, and I'm not saying I will, but if I decide to do this, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? See, Moses knows what's about to come before him partly because he's been down this road before, and partly because he knows all of his shortcomings. He's tried, and he couldn't get anyone to follow his coattails before. He's going to need something else. He had a platform before. He has nothing now. He had a reason for people to follow him before. He has nothing now. So whenever he shows up, he's going to have to have something to give them for them to say, all right, Moses, I'll follow you. He can't just come back and say, hey, guys, I'm back. You want to try this again? It's not going to work for him. He needs something else. So now he changes his question. And his question moves from, Who am I to who are you? What's your name? And that is a really good question to ask. Now, Moses is not asking it for the right reasons, and God will show that to him here in just a second, but it's a good question to ask. I want you to think about this. Moses would have been brought up within Pharaoh's household. We don't know how much of of Israel's religion and religious background Moses has, has taken in. He may not know a whole lot about the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He may know a lot, but he may not know much. But we know that he was educated at the best schools in Egypt. We know that he was, he was a, a well-read, well-learned Egyptian boy. And so we know that he would have known the Egyptian religious system well. He would have known the names of the gods of Egypt very, very well. The pantheon of Egypt's gods would have been something he could have identified. He would have known these things well. Well. And they all had names that told you what they were over. That's what their names served to do. They were, they were gods for the Nile, gods for the crops, gods for the rain, gods for sun, gods for fertility. They had all these different gods and they all had names that went along with what they were over. If you wanted to have authority over those things, then you needed to worship or, or some influence over those things in your life, you needed to worship that particular god. So if you were struggling with infertility, you would need to worship the fertility God. If you were praying for a good crop that year, you would say all kinds of prayers to the sun God, the, the rain God, the, the, the fertility God, the, the, the God of the harvest. You'd say all kinds of prayers and do all kinds of things to worship those gods. And you would call them by name. So Moses wanted to know what name he was supposed to put before Israel and the rulers of Egypt. He wants to know, look... They know all these guys that do these things. What's your name going to be so that I can put that out there up alongside all these other gods? And then God answers him, but not in any way that he thought he would. God replied to Moses in verse 14. I am who I am. This is what you will say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Yahweh, that is my name. I am who I am. It's terrible grammar, it's a mess. It's not a name you'd call anybody. It's not a name you give to someone. It's kind of off. But this is the name that God gives Moses, and Moses knows that something has been redefined for him in this moment. He knows that the God he is talking to is utterly different than these other gods. The grammar used there is kind of weird, because if you study Hebrew, what you will find is that Hebrew doesn't really have tenses, so to speak, whenever you conjugate the verbs, Hebrew, the, the tenses are kind of defined by the context around it. But when God gives his name, he doesn't give context. He just says, I am who I am. And so it would be perfectly right for us to, t- for us to, to translate this, I was who I was, or I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. But really, the best translation is that all three of those come together in his name. I was, I am, and I will be. You see, God doesn't give him a name for what he is over. God doesn't give Moses a name that says, I am the God of blank. That's too small for God. You don't define God by what he rules. Because if you do that, you automatically limit him. Thor may be the god of thunder, but that means he's not the god of the sea. God doesn't get a name like that. God's name will not limit him. God is not going to be defined by what he is not ruling over. God's definition is going to be simply that he is, that he exists. He says, tell the Israelites, I am sent you. God simply is, and his authority knows no bounds. He is not limited in his sovereignty. You do not need to tell him, you you don't need to tell them that I'm, I'm God over anything. Just tell them, I'm God, and that will suffice. Friends, this morning there is no limit to what God is sovereign over. None, not one shred not one speck of dust he rules it all all of it there is nothing he bows a knee to there is nothing he defers to not even you and he tells moses that's my name the name is so important because the name is the marker for who he is I wanted to use this translation this morning in a lot of Exodus because the, the HCSB uses the word in verse 15 that, that this I am translates to, Yahweh. It's God's covenantal name with the Israelite people. This is not the first time that it's used in Scripture. God says that he wants this to be his memorial name, the name that he's remembered by through all the generations. It's what he'll be known by. He's the God God. Who is? what is his name Yahweh I am that is his name and we'll get into this more, word a lot more I would love to spend the next 20 minutes talking about this word Chris was begging me to spend 20 minutes talking about this word this morning we'll get there I can't do it for the sake of time but we'll get there but for now you simply need to see how important it is that we get God's name right because when we get it right it will shape everything in our lives His name is Yahweh. His name is I am. Because if this is so important. This is what you've got to understand this morning. Because if God's name is I am, do you know what that means for us? We have a name too. It's I am not. If God is, then we are not. And that little truth right there shapes everything. Hear me everything if god is i am then everything is shaped around him not us because we are not if god is i am then it puts everything in its proper place it means i am not the center I am not the goal. I am not the authority. I am not the decider of right and wrong. I am not the one to be celebrated. I am not the one to be praised. I am not the one to be answered to. It shapes who we are because it tells us what we are not. It shapes all of our relationships. I am not my wife's ruler. I am not my wife's hope. My wife is not my salvation. My wife is not my trophy or my object that I possess. It defines me as a parent. I am not ultimately in control of them. I am not finding my meaning in them. I am not living as though I am their savior because I am not. It defines my career I am not defined by my career. I am not defined by my work. I am not defined by my paycheck. I am not. It defines me as a student. I am not my grade. I am not my degree. I am not my GPA. I am not my test score. Amen. I am not defined by the level of education I receive that tells everyone how great I am because I am not. Do you see how it begins to shape everything about us? On and on and on it goes. I am not any of these things because God is I am. Most of us spend our lives trying to make some sort of name for ourselves. Perhaps it's in an academic community. Perhaps to our employer or our employees. Perhaps to our peers and to our parents. But we want people to notice us, to respect us, to celebrate us, to be proud of us, to to lock on to us, to find meaning in us, to find purpose in us, to celebrate us, to do great things for us. We're trying to make a name for ourselves, but our names are I am not. You can get the little hello, my name is I am not on there. When I first began to have this message etched on my heart as a high school student, I knew that one day I would get a Bible that would have that phrase written on it, I am not. When I first became a pastor here at Providence, I got a, a Bible that would be my, my preaching Bible that I would preach most of my messages from. And on the, the front of this Bible, it says right here where my name normally would be, it says, I am not. That is what is on my preaching Bible here. It is a constant reminder to me as I stand here before you this morning that I have nothing to give you from myself. I am not. That I am not your savior. I am not your ruler. I am not your hope. I am none of those things. I am not to be popular. I am not to even be liked because I am not. I am not that important One day someone else will stand up here before you and will teach you. And God can raise up a donkey to do what I am doing here today. Because I am not. But God is. He was, He is, and He always will be. He is the ultimate goal. He's the one who defines me. The one who marks me. The one who drives me. The one who is the ultimate authority in my world and the rest of the world. The supreme value in the world. Because He says, that's my name, I am am that's my name and I will be exalted above all names is what he tells us have you ever noticed how important god's name is in scripture i read that that the the, the psalm there earlier whenever we started i told you we'd come back to verse 12 and that it was important God answered Moses, he says, I certainly will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Do you see what the goal of this whole endeavor is here? It is not primarily to set the people of Israel free. That is not God's primary goal. The the goal of the whole endeavor here is not to fulfill Moses' dream. It's not to alleviate suffering. It's not to embarrass the Egyptians. All of those things will happen. The primary goal here is that God will be worshiped. That's that's the reason God remembers his people, so that he will be worshiped. This is the aim of all of Scripture, of all of life, of all of history. This is the aim of the entire universe. The psalm tells us that the universe is spinning and singing to the glory of God the Father. That is the goal of life in the whole universe, to worship God. When I say worship, I'm not talking about coming in here and singing songs that we like and we get kind of charged up and we put our hands in the air. That's not what I'm talking about. That's maybe a small glimpse of worship. What I'm talking about is unrelenting, unabashed praise for Yahweh. That's where all of history is headed. I want to do a very quick little tour of Scripture here. Just a few sampling of verses. Psalm 23. Do you guys know Psalm 23? You know that one well, right? Have you ever noticed this? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 God comes to David and he establishes a covenant with David and he's going to make David a, 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 a he's going to establish this covenant with David that continues on the, the Davidic covenant one of the most important passages in all of scripture and he tells David when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house why for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. I've already read you Isaiah 26, but here's chapter 48, 9, 10, and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I will restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my... How, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In John's gospel, Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees, and he wants to make it absolutely clear who he is claiming to be. And he tells them, before Abraham was, I am. And he lays it out that he is saying, I am God. For those of you that have heard someone say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the Gospels. That is nonsense. It is lost in the translation. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, what he's saying is, before Abraham was, I am God. That's what he's saying. When all is said and done, it's all about Jesus. Paul writes it this way in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that why, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every, in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. It's all about his name. This is why this is so important here. At the very beginning, in Exodus chapter 3, God establishes his name. He says, I am, which means you are not. And that will drive everything in our lives. So long as you are constantly saying, I am important, I am worthy, I am necessary, I am needed, I am important here, pay attention to me, you will never understand the message of scripture and you will never follow God as you have been called to because his name is I am and you are not. And so what you've got to decide is if that's where your life is headed. Is that what your marriage is about, the name of God? Or is that somehow about you and your own personal fulfillment, your own personal happiness, and your own, you know, lovey-dovey feelings that you have? Is that what your marriage is about, the name of God? Is that what your parenting is about, the name of God? When When you look to your kids and you try to teach them and you try to educate them and you try to give them a path, are you more worried about whether or not they will do something great that you can be proud of, or are you more worried about the name of God? Students, is this what your schooling is about? Are you getting a degree for the name of God or are you getting a degree for a paycheck or for a career or for comfort in the future? Is it about the name of God? Is this what your job is about? Is this what your paycheck is about? Is this what your life is about? That is the question. Will you live life saying, I am important? Or you live life saying, I am not. That is the question that is being asked of you this morning. God says, I was, I am, and I will be. And all of history is moving towards the praise of his name. And the question is, are you? Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we... We confess this truth. We confess the sin for how often we try to make the story about us. We confess the truth for how often we want to say that I am the most important thing. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand what it means to to humbly, truthfully confess, to say I am not. That our dreams, our hopes... Everything that we have in our lives that we think about when we think about the future would be crucified on the cross. They would die at the foot of the cross because we are not. And that everything in our lives would be leveraged to the glory and the fame of your name. That your name would be made great by the things you've placed in front of us. That the direction of history going to the praise of your name would be the direction in which our lives are flowing and that we would not swim against that. And that ultimately we would find what truly matters. That's in Christ's name. Amen.